Hey everybody, I'm Ashton Demery. And I'm Nicole Demery. And welcome to our Atheist Bible Study, where if you're tired of reading about genocide... That's too damn bad! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are starting with Joshua. Do you have anything to say about the source for Joshua? Yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll do a little background here. I'll start with what I think is probably obvious, which is that the book of Joshua has little to no historical value. At least that's the consensus of most historians and uh, scholars. It's possible the book of Joshua reflects some time period in Israel's history, that it may have represented some of the political realities of the time that it was written, but it definitely doesn't reflect the time period that it is meant to be referencing, which is the founding period of the kingdom of Israel. Yeah. So what we do have from that time period in terms of archaeological evidence, we know that there were pretty widespread destruction of cities, which seems to be consistent with this, but in all but a few cases, they're not the cities that are being referenced by the book of Joshua. So the book of Joshua names a whole bunch of cities, and only a couple of them are actually cities that we know to have even existed at that time. Most of these cities that are referenced in the book of Joshua appear to not be inhabited at all at the time that we're talking about here. And they certainly were not uh, attacked and destroyed by an outside kingdom at that time. And then any lo- any city or location that was consistent, the few that there were, there's no reason to believe that these were destroyed by the same group of people. Okay. So some scholars actually theorize that the founding of Israel was maybe a peaceful one. It was like, they, they just, just sort of in. they just sort of showed up <laughs> and they planted themselves and nobody really cared yeah right? also as far as the composition of it it's understood to be composed partially at least during the reign of king josiah and parts of it seem to be composed in the uh, post-exilic period so king josiah was from uh, 640 to 609 bce and it's the same time that we understand the book of deuteronomy to be Composed. We've talked a little bit about it in the book of Deuteronomy, but there's a theory of the Deuteronomist history, which is the idea that uh, one person or maybe a small group of people may have composed all of these books, uh, including Joshua, Kings, Judges, into sort of a single narrative that was meant to help push the agenda of King Josiah and of the current Levite priesthood. Got it. As far as what Joshua's themes are, it really reflects the needs of the centralized monarchy and the centralized church. It really gives like a single origin story and narrative that encapsulates a lot of the stories that already exist, right? They reference the Exodus and a lot of these other stories that Israelites would have been familiar with and Mm -hmm. would have had an oral tradition about. And they put it all into one cohesive, more or less cohesive narrative that kind of works. Yeah, and that's all I have for the background for now. Okay, cool. So, story-wise, Moses has just died, so God is turning things over to Joshua, and he tells Joshua that it's time for them to enter the Holy Land, and also um, every place that they have stepped foot in so far is theirs. So from the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea in the west shall be your territory. So that's like the area that they're supposedly being given to by God. No one is going to stand against them as long as they follow God. Uh, God tells them to be careful to follow the book of the law, which is the thing that Moses wrote down before he died. And yeah, that's pretty much the first part of Joshua. The biggest thing I noticed in this section was the statement from the wilderness in Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea in the West shall be your territory. So we've seen this a bunch of times whenever we have this reaffirming of the covenant and they give the, they re-say the the land that they're supposed to be occupying. And each time that they do it or that they describe the land again in some other place or in like one of the summary sections, I try to map out the best I can what area they're talking about. It's pretty clear when I'm looking at these that the area is shifting pretty drastically. And I was able to find a scholar that that talks about this on the Torah.com. They have an article in which he's able to kind of categorize these maps broadly into three different versions of the map. You have the large map, the medium map, and the small map. 
So the small map is one that we saw at the end of Deuteronomy. It's described as being from Dan to Beersheba or in similar terms to that each time. So the northern extent of it is at Dan and then the southern extent of it is in the the Negev. And this map is actually pretty close to the land space that Israel did occupy, the extent of where the tribes were located. But then there's another map that they give has a similar border in the south, but it also includes the Philistine coast and the coast of Lebanon. So they describe it as being from the wilderness of Zin and then having a northern boundary at Lebo Hamath. And if you look at that on a modern map today, that's like southern Syria, Mm -hmm. essentially. And so it's described in Numbers 34 and they hint at it in Numbers 13 because the spies go all the way to Lebo Hamath. And there are like a few different variations of this one, but it seemed to be describing pretty much that area. And then there's the biggest map, which is essentially the one being described here. And it's massive compared to the other ones because it describes it as being from the Nile to the Euphrates. Yeah. Um, I I figured that this was the big one because it it made it sound like, it seemed like the whole time they've just been like traveling through places and like kind of conquering here and there on the side. And I know like a couple of the tribes asked for some land that they wanted to go to instead of the Holy Land. But, like, this is, like, the first time that they were, like, actually, everywhere that you stepped is also yours. So, like, all the wilderness that you traveled through, too. Whereas, like, before, it's been, like, we don't care about any of this stuff. Like, we're just trying to get to the Holy Land. Yeah. And they so that one is described here and also in Genesis 15. So, I think it's it's easy for us to understand is just, like, a, a different commentators describing different extents of the land. I think some of them understanding that this is not the land they occupied, but sort of trying to make a political case for expansion. Mm -hmm. But it presents a problem for traditional commentators and people who do understand this book as a real reflection of history because you have these different versions of the map. And then almost more problematic is that you have God promising a certain land space and then in Joshua, Joshua literally only occupies some of this, right? And then it basically says that he goes forth and takes all the land that's promised, but then that land isn't the land that was originally promised. So th- there's a few ways that they try to handle it. One is they just say that they're just using different words and they're all the same land area, which I think is, is more or less just lazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't really address the question because it's they're obviously not the same places. Right. You can't tell me that the Euphrates is the same location as Dan. Right. Like you can't tell me it's the same location when they're talking about the Negev, which is in the southern end of Israel, when, and they're talking about the same place when they say from the Nile. So I think that one is just like somebody just doesn't want to deal with the question at all. The other way they deal with it is that they say that, well, Joshua only occupies a part of that it's a staged invasion, basically, in which the early, the Israelites in Joshua only occupy a small portion of the land that is promised to them. And this kind of gets brought up by like fundamentalist Christians and like prophets, mm-hmm. because they talk about this in terms of like Armageddon, basically claiming that Israel has never actually occupied the promised land. And then as part of God's fulfillment of Armageddon and everything, Israel is going to take all of their land back. And so they, it really allows for them to see modern-day Israel occupation of uh, Palestine as... Justified. Well, yeah, justified and part of something that's necessary to bring about yeah. what they see as the end state for the world. Right, yeah. I feel like this is like one of those things where a lot of Christians like to do that thing where they're like, well, why are you hating on my religion? Like, I'm not hurting anyone. I think this is like a pretty clear instance of your beliefs hurting other people because you're saying that it's okay for Israel to be doing what they're doing in Palestine because it's all part of like some God's plan. Right. I think it like circles back to that. Like if you have some kind of arbitrary source of universal truth that you don't have to put a lot of thought into, you can justify a lot of things and you can come to a lot of really bad conclusions, especially when things are as like messy as the Bible is and you're trying to make that fit neatly and 
work with modern realities. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so Nick's, I guess we're talking about the spies being sent to Jericho. Yeah. So next, Joshua tells the officers of the people to prepare all of their men because they're going to invade in three days. Um, and the plan is that the women, children, and livestock will stay in the camp while the men go and fight. And everybody swears their allegiance to Joshua, like super emphatically, like, forget Moses, we love you now, Joshua, kind of thing. Before they invade, Joshua sends two spies into Jericho. And the first thing that these men do is visit a whorehouse. (laughs) When they go into a new country. (laughs) And that's where they meet this woman named Rahab, who is a prostitute. I think they were just excited to just not have, like, priests over their shoulder. Yeah, (laughs) they're like, lad's day, lad's day. Yeah, everyone's like, oh, it's unclear if they were going to her for sex or if they just like happen to meet her <laughs> it's like oh okay yeah two men just like happen to start talking to a woman at this time who was a prostitute yeah and when they they're weren't trying to, to have spies, sex with her yeah when they're supposed to be they're trying to avoid sussing out the situation <laughs> so anyways so they sp- both spend the night with her and during this time the king is informed that there are spies and that they're staying with Rahab And he asks Rahab to give them up. So Rahab decides to, instead of giving them up, she hides the men on her roof. And she tells the king's men or whatever that the two men did visit her, but they left in the middle of the night. And if, you know, if they leave now, then they might still catch them kind of thing. So they fall for it. She goes up to the men upstairs And she tells them that, like, hey, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that everyone here is, like, super worried about it. And they all, like, melt in fear before you. So I have, like, I have thoughts on Rahab that are very different from, well, they're not different. Christian women still kind of revere Rahab. But they do this whole thing where they're like, despite being a prostitute, which like, (laughs) (laughs) all right, fuck you. (laughs) And I'm just here to put some respect on her name. So I need to read you how Rahab does this like, oh, everyone is like, everyone here is so afraid of you. So this is what she says to the men. She says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Okay, when I read that, I'm not (laughs) reading a woman who has just suddenly had like, a turnaround of faith who's like you know what yeah. god is the one true god she's, a survivor. I'm gonna go. she's backing the winning team right now <laughs> she is like all right these people like have killed everybody you know i've had my ear to the ground on the situation they've been like tearing through the countryside get to this spot like i'm gonna you know save my yeah. family and they have my no own prisoners. back yeah because she's just so over the top about it it's just yeah. like <laughs> I don't know. I just like when I read it, it doesn't even sound like they're like trying to make it seem like she doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that she's a girl boss and that she really said gaslight gatekeep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's interesting too the way that they address uh, prostitution here. And this isn't really the only example. Like, it seems like. Like there are definitely parts in the Old Testament where they condemn prostitution, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem like they care that much. Like it doesn't seem, you know, Christians today, like you talk about prostitution and like yeah. they're, you know, blocking repulsed, their ears. You know yeah. I mean? like, it's like, you know, they, they take it pretty seriously, mm-hmm. but it seems like at the time it was kind of like, yeah, it happens, you mm-hmm. know, I just, I guess I just wonder because there are parts where they attack it, but I wonder if there was just sort of, it's one of those things where it seems like there's a disconnect between like uh, the elite, like priestly class that mm-hmm. like takes a lot of these holiness stuff pretty seriously to like the standard, the average Israelite 
where like prostitution's a reality and like there's kind of an acknowledgement of like we're gonna keep saying this is bad because we don't want you guys doing mm-hmm. it, but we know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, well, it almost gives like in the camp this is very much not okay. Like take that business to the to the other <laughs> cities, <laughs> yeah. to the pagan cities. Uh, also, we've talked about before how they had like temple prostitutes at a lot of pagan cities mm-hmm. or just in Near East cultures. I feel like what what this tells me a little bit is that it probably existed in the Israelite cities too, mm-hmm. and like like to some extent. Yeah, I mean, and, they seem pretty comfortable or familiar. I don't know, like yeah, yeah. Anyways, the to- uh, the two men, you know, totally eat up what Rahab is giving them, so they agree. They climb out of her house by rope because um, she so she lives in the wall that defends the city. So there's like a wall surrounding the city and her house is inside of the wall. So they so basically when they climb out of her window, they're like climbing out of the city. Kind okay, of. Gotcha. So, so they climb out of her window um, and she tells them to like hide in the hills for three days while the men are out looking for them. Um, and then they can go back to the camp. So the two men tell her to tie a red cord outside the window that they have escaped out of to signal to the Israelites when they invade that, like, this house is is a no-go zone. Like, we're not mm-hmm. supposed to kill the people in this house. So it's, like, hearkening back to the first Passover kind of thing where they're painting their doorways with blood, only this time they're just using a red string. Yeah, I was, like, associating that red string with, like, you know, her being a prostitute. Like, it was, like... I don't know, whatever she used to, like, get their attention in the first place. Like, oh, boys, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. We have very different <laughs> visions of what, of what Rahab is doing. <laughs> I read one thing about the red string being tied up in the window, like the window itself being symbolism, because a lot of other women in the Bible kind of look through windows like passively let things happen to them mm-hmm. where Rahab is like engaging more with the window because she's she has more agency mm-hmm. than other women in the bible and so like that's kind of symbolic her use of the window i feel like along with that like her kind of taking more control of her life thing but red string is also used to symbolize like fate like a red is symbolized sometimes mm. as a red string and so I feel like that's like another kind of symbolic thing there that I don't know if they were doing that intentionally or but anyways so when I like I said so when I see this story I like for oh my god this is like my lifeboat you know what I mean <laughs> like I finally have uh there's a woman who is taking action in her life she's doing some deceiving she's mm-hmm. Saving not only her own skin, but her entire family. Yeah. It seems like she's kind of like in charge of her life, but also like other people's lives. Like she's a yeah. little bit of a matriarchal figure. And you uh, get like one page. Yeah, I know. We don't get very Enjoy much it. of her. So I looked up, you know, what Christian women write of her. And I mentioned that a lot of it is like, despite Ew, her disgusting, lowly origins. <laughs> <laughs> um, despite. So I have this like thing that I saved from one of the blogs. So this is Heroic Women of the Bible, Rahab, From Harlot to Heroine by God's Grace by Kelly Wise Valdez. Yeah, I... (laughs) Hold on, I got... Let me read it first. Okay, I know. I just like... I I like the opener there because I I do... I feel like Christians do this a lot with Mm -hmm. uh, characters like Rahab. It's like they assume she's not a prostitute anymore. Right. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's probably it never said she stopped being a prostitute. Like, you know what I mean? That's still like, her career, man. Her, like, be, her process of becoming a heroine must have involved not being a prostitute anymore. It's like, yeah. Well, a lot of them try to, try to be like, even though it says they're in black and white, like she was a prostitute. A lot of them are try to say like she was an innkeeper. So they'll like sanitize it by saying that she she actually ran an inn and that's why the two men went there is because they went to go stay in an inn you think people are doing it in yeah come on man <laughs> okay so this is what kelly weisfeld does have to say she said rahab was not a likely candidate for a hero of the faith she was a prostitute in a corrupt pagan city that was under god's condemnation spiritually rahab was not an Id- in an ideal circumstance to come to faith in god however Rahab had heard the Israelites were God's chosen people. Her actions to save the spies and align with God's people saved her and her family. 
Like Rahab, once we become Christians, our pasts are forgiven. The, state, the slate is wiped clean. Rahab was no longer viewed as an unclean prostitute, but as one worthy through God's grace to be part of the lineage of Jesus. The life of Rahab is an inspiring story for all sinners who have been saved by grace. (laughs) (laughs) I I just just feel like it completely ignores the fact that she did this. She chose this. (laughs) She, She did this for herself. And like the whole language that they use is just like, God did this for her. And yeah, it's like, yeah. no, she was clearly pulling the wool over their eyes to well, help her family if, like, out. Like pulling the wool over their eyes necessarily. Cause like everybody's getting something out of this. She's, yeah, she true. just like yeah. use her like situation, like made a deal. I was like, Hey, like you what want I, me to tell somebody that like yeah. you're here, like I need some guarantees. That's what I'm saying is it's <sighs> like a minuscule part of this is the fact that she gave them what they wanted to hear, which is like, you know, your God is the one God and he's going to yeah. come and destroy everybody. The, the situation is what you just said. It's blackmail. Basically, it's like she was in a position where she could either turn the men over mm-hmm. or she could like cut a deal for herself out of this. Yeah. And that's what she did. Yeah. Well, and again, the, there's like an assumption that like she like came to God too. It's like, right. Like I, I am, I'm not, I'm not certain that like, I, I'm pretty confident that a, that a Jewish person in like, I don't know, the, the sixth century mm-hmm. BC reading this probably would have understood Rahab as still a Canaanite woman. Like mm-hmm. she, they would have understood her as still being pagan, most likely. Yeah. I don't think that would have really, I, I don't think they would have understood this as like a conversion story. Yeah. Because that's a very Christian idea. That's I mean, an idea that, that uh, even modern Jews don't really have. They, it's not a faith that's about converting people. Yeah. Well, it does say that, like, after this, her and her family become Israelites. But, well, like, live to, among the that's Israelites, what I'm saying. Is what it's like, it, to me, it's not, it's not saying that they, like, completely, you know, change their way of life and now they live like yeah, Israelites do. That wasn't important that, to the people writing this. It's also not, it wasn't in the deal either. Like, it, she didn't say, like, and, right. you know, me and my family will go and worship your God too now. It's like, yeah, I'm sure they, like, keep up appearances while living among them, but, yeah. like, I'm not convinced that they've, like, done a whole turnover to a completely different faith yeah, because well, of this. Uh, I just think it's like the, the central point there is that the idea of conversion was not central to the political needs of the Levite priests writing this book. Yeah. Right. Like they don't, they don't want you to convert pagans. They don't want pagans involved with any of this at all. Mm-hmm. Rahab is just a single exception probably based on an oral story that people already knew that they dropped in there. They don't want you to have this idea of like the pagans coming, becoming uh, Jews. Like it's not something they want to sell. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, um, I want to emphasize that I'm not trying to like romanticize sex work in any way. Like, but I, it bothered me that like all these Christian women kept using this language, like, Oh, despite her being a sex worker, Mm -hmm. despite her being a prostitute and acting like as if that, Somehow, made, well, they literally called her unclean and like making it sound as if right. she's beneath everybody because of her profession. Um, and I think that's bullshit. I just think her character is like the best in the Bible that I've come across so far. I really mm-hmm. like her. And the other thing that I kind of slipped in and we didn't, haven't really talked about is the fact that she is related to Joseph. So her children, something with Ruth and Bose which we'll meet later in the Bible. Wait, related to which Joseph? Jesus' stepdad. Okay, got, got you, okay. So we have, we're introduced to Rahab, and then her children, we, you know, we talk about them later, and then that eventually leads to Joseph. Yes. And well, I, it becomes back-painted that's from what, a New Testament point of view. In the story, I'm saying in the context of the this story. Entire yes. Religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got yeah. It. I think it's interesting that we care at all about Joseph's lineage, Joseph's lineage because like he's not giving anything. He's not contributing anything to the line of Jesus. Really? He's just a stand in yeah, figure. We haven't gotten there yet, but there are like, there is a whole thing about like, there's basically like two different needs that the writers of the, of the new Testament narrative need to meet. Mm-hmm. One is like the Romans like this idea of a, virgin birth like it like these kind of like it fits a little bit with some of the roman yeah. uh mythology and yeah. like things that that romans might come around to right 
and then the more the more prophecy stuff that connects him to David mm-hmm. is big for for Jews and they need to get that to sort of bring Jews on board. Okay. But we're not really there yet and I don't know much more than that about it as of right now. Okay. Okay. Oh, interesting. All right. I'm excited for when we get there then. Yep. So the men go back. They tell Joshua that, you know, they're set, good to go um, because everybody's already afraid of them. Next, we have Israel crossing the Jordan. So camp gets an early start to the day. They move uh, right up against the Jordan River and everyone is instructed to start, you know, making their way across once they see the Ark of the Covenant. But none of them are supposed to get too close to it. They're supposed to keep like a certain distance away from it. You know, God is reinforcing that he has Joshua's back and he's going to be behind him like he was behind Moses. And then they ask 12 priests from, sorry, a priest from each tribe, 12 in total, are asked to carry the ark across the Jordan and the river parts for them. So this is like God trying to signal to everybody like, I like this guy just as much as I like Moses kind of thing. So like I parted the sea for Moses. I'm doing the same thing for Joshua. Um, And so this is how everybody crosses the Jordan is like it parts for them and they all walk across it. After they cross, 12 men are selected again and they're asked to go pick a rock out of the Jordan and pile them up somewhere to set as like a reminder that the Jordan was parted for all the Israelites to cross. And there's a little line in there that says it still stands to this day. Yeah. And the Israelites get to pick out a few suvies too. They take some rocks of their own to keep with them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. After they do their little rock stacking, there is oh, the new generation circumcised. Before they get into the whole circumcision business, they start talking about how the Amorites hear about the water drying up for the Israelites and, you know, their hearts melt and their spirits leave them. Which is like a phrase that gets repeated a lot in this. It's yeah, like people's yeah. hearts melting. They're and Shaking in their boots. Yeah. <laughs> Quaking. But yeah, so... And their sandals, I suppose. <laughs> there's not much on the circumcision thing. It's basically just everybody gets circumcised again. Because apparently nobody was getting circumcised as they were being born on the way over. And there's this, like, go, like, really in-depth into this explanation about how, like, yeah, everyone who started the journey was, like, totally circumcised. But then, like, remember, God didn't let them go into the Holy Land. And they all died off. So now all those circumcised people are dead. And we have this whole group of people who are uncircumcised. And, you know, now we have to take care of that, obviously. So we have another day of everybody you know, everybody in the camp getting their dicks chopped up before a fight. <laughs> yeah, another day of sorrow for <laughs> the men of Israel. Yeah. So this one reads really weird, uh, and it, it seems to be pretty obvious redaction because if you if you read it, it's like at that at that time the Lord said to Joshua, "Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites a second time." So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua had to circumcise them. All the males of the people, like mm-hmm. it basically is it, like it, it reads like a footnote. It's like, yeah, it's like, oh, th- well, this is why. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, so it seems really clear to me that somebody went back and they realized in this original version, it did not account for the fact that these that the Israelites had already been circumcised. Yeah. When they were leaving Egypt. Mm-hmm. So. Somebody went and changed it to a second time and then added in that explanation. And they go really in depth to say, oh, well, like they all the people who had been circumcised, they died. So now and nobody else was circumcised during the journey. So all the people that were not circumcised now have to be circumcised. Yeah. And it's like it's not how you how a normal story works, right? Like a normal story you don't have to go backwards and explain events because at each event follows from the previous one. If you just said they circumcised them, you'd be like, okay. Yeah. Also this whole, in doing this redaction to try to like make this whole thing mesh and, and work, they actually violate the covenants of law codes Mm. basically. Right. Because if we remember in both Leviticus and Genesis, it was commanded that you will circumcise male children on their eighth day after birth. Mm -hmm. So if we say that the entire time they're wandering around the wilderness, nobody was circumcised, they were violating that the entire time. Yeah. I know. I kind of get the sense every time they talk about circumcision that nobody is really like wanting to do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's kind of something that like everyone's just kind of like, oh yeah, like he's circumcised, like we're doing that. And then it's like, <laughs> then they have to have a whole day where it's like, okay, it turns out none of you are doing it. So round up everybody. We're doing it now. So they, everybody gets circumcised. They have a Passover. And the only thing of, that I thought was interesting in this little Passover description is it talks about how the manna has now stopped appearing because they have finally eaten the produce of Canaan, which is something that we've gone back and forth a little bit about of like how confusing it is. Like, are they still eating manna? Because it was like, supposedly they ate manna for 40 years, but then there's talk of people getting to eat things from sacrifices. So yeah, I don't know if we're just supposed to believe that they were eating manna and, you know, supplementing with some sacrifices and some bread and all that stuff or. Yeah. I, I think what we're seeing here is in crafting Joshua, they're really trying to set up this central narrative that can be sort of the, a central text. They're hoping, I think for all of Israel Mm -hmm. and they're just dropping in references to these stories that people already know. Yeah. That are already commonplace in the cult at this time. Stories about Exodus, the manna stories, and they're just sort of hinting at them and they're not really fleshing them out and really going back and rewriting the entire stories of Exodus. Yeah. But they just, oh yeah, remember manna, you all know about manna and that story, right? So the manna stops now. Yeah. Then Joshua has a vision. So he has a dream where he sees a man with a sword. He approaches the man and he asks him, like, hey, are you a friend or a foe? And um, the man replies that he is the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua is then asked to remove his shoes because the land that he's on is holy. And that's the whole thing. And I just feel like something is definitely missing from this story. Like it just, it seems like they set up something and then nothing really happens. Like Mm -hmm. basically all all that happens is he sees a man with a sword, is told that that's the commander of the Lord's army. And then Joshua takes off his shoes and that's it. It feels like he should be told something here and that doesn't really happen. Then the other thing I have about this story is, so some people think this is an angel and other people think it is Jesus basically. And uh, yeah, and I I get why they think it's Jesus only because like angels are described differently later on, you know, like they're described with like all the eyes and the wings and all that crazy stuff. And in this time, by a completely different yeah, no, set of people, I, different, yeah, 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 hundreds of years, um, different time period, yeah. But um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, and, and in this story, you know, it's. There's no wings. It's just a man with a sword. Mm-hmm. I also think Jesus doesn't make sense, though, because, like, Jesus isn't really, like, when is Jesus carrying a sword? He's never carrying a sword. His whole thing is, like, he's, yeah. a, he's a shepherd boy. Well, so like, we haven't heard, we haven't seen angels described as having wings anywhere up until this point in the Old Testament either. True. Yeah. yeah. And then they have been visited by angels before, and they've all been, like, um, men. Yeah. Also, I, I think similarly to the the river there's some parallels here with Moses. The whole sandal thing is pretty much exactly like the burning bush. Yes. Thing. Yeah. Um, so that was the big thing I noticed there. Yeah. Maybe that's all that they were trying. Maybe nothing is missing. They were just trying to like set up another parallel like that. Yeah. Okay. So Joshua is now they're in Jericho and they are instructed to march around Jericho for six days, blasting seven trumpets. And on the seventh day, Everybody is to shout after the final trumpet sound and the walls of Jericho will fall. And so <laughs> they um, so they do this. Um, the walls fall and the soldiers are instructed to leave Rahab and her family alone. They're instructed to destroy idols, collect silver and gold for the Lord's treasury. So they're not, you know, taking the taking gold and silver for themselves, and to kill all men, women, children, oxen, sheep, and donkey. Rahab and her family are escorted out of the city. I just now realized how weird this is because it specifically says that Rahab's family lives in the wall yeah, I was that just they thinking that just too, destroyed. Too. And she, what was the point of her setting up the red string in her window if they're not, there's not going to be a window for them to go you know, check out if these yeah. walls are just crumbling it, down. If, if she and does then, live in the wall, it doesn't really make any sense because they 
talk about destroying the house after she gets out of it, but yeah. the wall came down already. So Yeah. And then they go in and escort her out. Yeah, I don't know. And then Joshua says a little curse for anybody who tries to rebuild Jericho. I don't really have anything about this. Yeah. It's just a super silly story. It's it like is really silly. The but idea of like them made just for a fun around. game. Huh? It made for a fun game when we were kids. Yeah, we do that I mean, at Bible is this school? the basis of Ring Around the Rosies? Because that's what it sounds like. No, that's like the bubonic plague or something like oh, that. Is that what that is? Yeah. But um, yeah, we used to do this. We would like build up a little like Lego wall and then march around it and stuff. And then we get to knock it down at the end. It's fun. Yeah, you were hella Christian. <laughs> All right. So they take Jericho. But then some funny business starts happening. So someone in Judah's tribe named Achan uh, takes an idol. And so God's anger burns against everybody for this. So we get that little like precursor. And then it starts talking about how Joshua sends some spies to I. And um, spies go and they report back that it's a small town. And it, you know, it should only take about 3,000 men to take all of it. So they march out. 36 of those 3,000 men are killed, which I think is like a weirdly specific and kind of small number. It's a pretty small number, yeah. Yeah, I just, out of 3,000. Anyway, so 36 of them are killed, and then, you know, they decide like, oh, no, and they all run away. Yeah, well, it seems like the way, like, Israel fights battles is they either just completely dominate and not one of them dies, Mm. or the second, like, men start dying, they're like, Cool. We're Oof. we're done. We're not used to this. We're running. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. I don't know. Uh true. So yeah, so they're then chased and then all of all of the men are killed. So now there's another line again about like hearts melting. Um it, but it says this time it says, now the Israelites' hearts melt and turn to water. Which like <laughs> I think it's like a weird read on yourself to be like implying that you had ice cold hearts. Before? Yeah. Anyways. Joshua is super uh, torn up about it. He tears his shirt off and falls on his face before the Lord. Yes. You know, like, God, like, why is this happening to us? And so then God tells him that it's because some people took idols from Jericho and they need to be rooted out and burned to death. So they go on a manhunt, basically comb through everybody in the camp. Akin confesses to taking some gold and silver. um, And then everybody stones him. And his entire family are burned along with all their belongings and cattle. Pretty severe punishment, especially for somebody who confessed to the crime. (laughs) Yeah, he's just such a dramatic bitch. Like, yeah, (laughs) like this massively over the top scheme to find the culprit who he knows who it is. Yeah, he's not instead of just like Joshua, go get go get Akin. He's just like, okay, we're going to go one by one among the tribes and then we're going to go. Through one by one of that tribe. Yeah. And then we're going to go go one by one of that family. And yeah. It's just so annoying then, to yeah. like read this story and have it be like, see, it was because they didn't listen to God. And that's why they felt where it's like, it seems pretty clear that somebody just fucked up on their spy report yeah, yeah. and that it was going to take more than 3000 men to overtake the city, or at least the way that you wanted to take the city because, you know, 36 people died and then you were like, oh shit, that's it. Like, yeah. And then, like, I mean, the, the obvious thing here, we, I feel like we've, we're becoming numb to it, but, like, burns the entire family yeah. for Akin taking a, you know, basically a, some kind of, like, doll or something. Right. You know? Um, and watching, you know, I, I looked up this story to see what Christians had to say about it, right? And, and there's always, that point always comes up. It's like, wow, it sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But... If you think about it, Akin committed a grave sin by disobeying Yahweh, right? And, like, they'll either say, like, well, you know, maybe, like, that was the ultimate punishment for, you know, Akin. Mm -hmm. So maybe he needed that much punishment was to have his whole family burned. Or they'd be like, well, probably his family was involved, too. Probably they they helped him. Well, and it's, like, two things. It's, like, so, one— People should not be dying by like committing theft and then confessing <laughs> to it. Yeah. And then also the fact that it's not just his family that are burned because of this. 3,000 people die because, according to God, 3,000 people died because he wasn't with them because this guy took some idol. Right. Or you know I thought I mean? it was 36. 
No, it was 36 initially. And then when they start, you know, they leave, they start running away. Then they're chased and they kill all those men too. Oh, oh yeah. Got yeah. You, got you. Okay. Yeah. Overall though, this is really just, it's meant to be a story that pushes the intent of the pro Josias priests of like stamping out idolatry, right? Really bringing that like central monotheism in and just how serious they're taking the idea of having any pagan objects. Mm -hmm. And that's really the the intent of this. Yeah. So then we have, I captured by a stratagem and destroyed. So basically with this whole Akon business, I think I've said his name differently every time I've said it. I'm just following you, right? (laughs) I I was pronouncing all of these things differently in my head. And as soon as you said it, I said, that's what we're going with. Like but we've gone go. from Akin to Akin to Akon now. I'm trying them all out. That one's definitely not it. I don't know anything about how to pronounce these names, but I know that one's not it. All right, we'll go with Akin. All right, so the whole Akin business behind them, the Lord is with them again. He's got their backs. But, you know, this time God thinks that Joshua is going to need all the fighting men to take I. So that's what they do. They set up this little plan where some people are going to go to the city, you know, and face them off. And then they're going to do the same thing that the 3,000 men did. They're going to start to turn tail and run. And as soon as they are chased by, like, all the men, because they're assuming that they're going to chase them again like they did Mm -hmm. before, then they're going to have men who have, like, camped behind the city go into the city and burn it to the ground. But again, I think we should take a moment to recognize how horrible this is because they're essentially setting a fire... They're essentially setting fire to a city that is just filled with women and children now. Yeah. yeah. All, all civilians. It, yeah, all, exactly. All civilians. So everyone is killed. The king of eyes taken alive. They're allowed to take some livestock as booty this time instead of having to kill everything. They hang the king from a tree and then they cut it down at like sunset or something. And then they leave it at the entrance of the city. They leave his body at the entrance of the city. It's very Danny from Game of Thrones, whole story. Yeah, I feel like as you're reading it, like, you know, they're really trying to tell, show you, like, look, th- this this God, you know, our God isn't, isn't some liberal pussy. You know? like, <laughs> <laughs> like, he's he's fucking hanging men from the neck, throwing them up over the gates yeah. and drowning them in rocks. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're really, like, pushing that, like, he's the God of fucking destroying. Mm-hmm. Pagans. Yeah. <laughs> also, so so we have an initial scouting report that says, hey, we need like 2,000 to 3,000 men. Mm-hmm. The only reason, according to Joshua, that they failed to win this battle was because of what Akin did. Right. God wasn't with them, okay? They took care of that. God's with them again. Yeah. But now... Yeah. Now, <laughs> they're setting up 30,000 men yeah. for an ambush... Plus another 5,000 men on, uh, so there were some on the north side and some on the west side. So another 5,000 for ambush. So 35,000 men for an ambush, plus however many are going in the direct attack with Joshua Mm -hmm. and are going to run away. Yeah. And there are only 12,000 people in I. Yeah. So presumably a maximum of 6,000 men, less if you're including, because I assume Children are among that 12,000. Right. What kind of a miracle is that? <laughs> 35,000 against 6,000 in an ambush? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's not, that's not a miracle of any kind. <laughs> and it's also just like, it's convenient that, like, now has been, God has been like, you know what? 3,000 isn't quite right. I think we should do everybody. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then after that, it's also like, oh. I don't know. Sorry. No, you go. <laughs> It's like a cell phone for for the people writing this that they needed thirty five thousand men in an ambush to beat I. Yeah, yeah, I I know. It's just it's it's like what you were saying earlier. It seems like the Israelites only like to attack people who are completely unprepared, and so like none of their people are going to die. It's mm-hmm. just like we just go in, you know, demolish, do our thing. They don't ever really like do any real battles. Yeah, I mean, according to these priests, I suppose. Yeah. All right, so then after this, Joshua renews the covenant. So he goes to Mount Ebal, and he builds an altar. On the stones, he copies Moses' work. What Moses wrote down, he writes into the stone. 
on top of Mount Ebal. Yep. And then, oh my God, this next part. Then everybody listens to Joshua do a read aloud of <sighs> everything that has been written, which is it's supposedly like the past like four books or whatever yeah. is what he reads aloud to them. Yeah, I, I'm just imagining like one of those montage scenes where it's like you don't actually hear the words, but you can see like Joshua's mouth moving as he's talking mm-hmm. and then like the sun across the sky like, <laughs> yeah. again and again yeah. and like people falling asleep in the crowd. Yeah. So next we have the Gibeonites save themselves by trickery. At this point, all the kings beyond the Jordan are like, all right, these guys like mean business. We should all band together and attack the Israelites, except for the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites have a different plan. Instead, they put on some like worn out clothes. They pack some torn bags that have been mended. Um, They pack moldy bread. And they travel to the Israelite camp and they tell them that they've traveled like a super, super long distance. You know, they've been traveling for weeks. And then they like point out everything about themselves. They're like, look at how worn out our sandals are. Look at this bread. I baked this bread fresh when we first started the journey. And like now look at it. It's all moldy. So all of this obviously supports the fact that we've been traveling for a very long time. And, you know, here we are. We definitely aren't people who live right next to you. And so they say like, you know, like we would like a treaty. We heard how awesome and powerful you all are. Uh, We don't want to deal with you all. We live far away. So like, let's make a deal. So Joshua specifically says he does not consult God on this matter. So he agrees to the treaty with them because like, obviously if he had consulted God, God would have known the whole time that they were their neighbors actually. So they agree. And then three days later, they find out, they come across the Gibeonite kingdom or whatever and they're like ah you guys you said you live far away (laughs) you you stinkers yeah so but since they already swore an oath they you know they don't attack they are like summoned to joshua joshua asks them oh like why have you done this thing like why have you tricked us (laughs) (laughs) why is it that instead of facing the death of your entire civilization that you have chosen to deceive us. <laughs> and they literally say, like, yeah, we thought we were going to die. So that's why we have done this. But they, ugh, it's so stupid. So they say, like, we thought we were going to die. But, you know, now deal with us as you wish. Like, uh, we obviously we owe you that kind of thing. Like, it's um, very grovelly. And so Joshua decides to, like, curse them. He, he curses them to be slaves forever. So they're all supposed to be woodworkers and people who carry water for the rest of their days. And so again, we kind of have this like referencing back to other stories. This one is a reference to Noah when he curses Ham Mm -hmm. and all of his descendants to be slaves forever. Right. So yeah, I don't know if this is supposed to be like, he's just like all the other patriarchies or if it's supposed to be a continuation of like, remember when we said they were all going to be slaves? Like they are, it's still happening. Yeah. Joshua is such a moron. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, he gives such um like frat boy energy because he just like he just he just comes out like raging all the time like it's just like kill everybody and then it, it's just like he just seems so young. Well, it's also like there's no reason for him to sign this treaty mm. to some like random group of people that live nowhere near them. Like when you have a treaty, it's usually because you've already been at war and you you know there's there's like more to be gained by like agreeing to certain terms than to continue fighting and losing people. Mm-hmm. So you sign a treaty, right? And oftentimes they're like one-sided, you know, you're basically like agreeing to you know, pro- provide like, I don't know, sometimes to be a vassal kingdom or something like that yeah. in exchange for not being, not fighting a war. But there's none of that here. There's no like mm-hmm. history between these two groups. And why have they come off from this far land just to, like, find them? Yeah. Plus, supposedly, they're invincible. So why would you sign a treaty? We'll talk a little bit about the Christian take on this. So there's basically three themes that Christians take home from this. So one is that you should consult God before all major decisions. Or else you might make a bad decision. Yeah. You must pray. So the first part of that's weird is that, like, Joshua's punishment, like, the consequences of him failing to consult God is just that now instead of getting to like, you know, murder their like families, 
they get slaves. Yeah. So not much of a punishment there. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the theme is that God holds people accountable to their oaths. So he has to follow through with mm-hmm. this treaty, even though they were tricked. Yeah. And then the third is that it is a demonstration of God's mercy that the Gibeonites are eventually accepted to become, uh, uh, to live among the Israelites. It blows my mind how <laughs> the moral of so many of these stories of like genocide and killing is that God is merciful. Like mm-hmm. that's the takeaway that I'm getting. Yeah. So there's also another like interesting racial aspect of all of this. Mm-hmm. Whenever I kind of search about like the different groups of the Bible and in terms of like just interested in like trying to like understand what they were supposed to be and if they were actually a real group of people or not. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of discussion from Christians of like, hey, where are they now? Right. Right. Christians are really interested in this idea of connecting these like biblical groups of people to modern day people. I mean, yeah, it makes sense because they're trying to like legitimize the stories. Right. I, I think like, uh, uh, yeah, on one hand, it's like totally understandable. It's like people are really interested in ancestry in general and like, yeah, especially if you can connect that to historical figures. Yeah. And so then they're like, if you can connect major groups to these like mythologies, Mm -hmm. that's something they're kind of interested in doing. But there's like a, there's a problematic side of this coin. Yeah. Because the first three Google hits for Gibeonites, two of them refer to the Gibeonites as dark skinned. Okay. Um, Wait, they, in what sources or like? So uh, one of them was AmazingBibleTimeline.com. Oh, that's what I meant. So it's like, is this just somebody saying that they're dark? Like, who said that they're dark skinned? That's the thing. So it's. Right, like don't the, tell me they're going the back quote, and saying that they're. The quote I have is like, oh, so what happened to the dark skinned Gibeonites? Uh, Which is like, it came out of nowhere. There was no discussion of it until that point. But like, they'd always, like, that's always how it was. It was like, all of a sudden, they add that adjective, like the dark skinned Gibeonites. That's not mentioned in the Bible anywhere. No, it's not. And they don't reference it. They don't really discuss it. And they don't discuss the skin color of the of the Jews, of the Israelites. Right. There's no discussion of that. So it, it just like drops in out of nowhere. And we've talked before. We understand that there is a history of using these religious ideas as a basis for defending slavery and discrimination. And they're not directly advocating that mm-hmm. but it, it seems like by referencing that they are kind of legitimizing yeah. it right it's yeah. like 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 it feels like it's not like you know black people descend from you know the Gibeonites or from ham therefore their subordinate position in society yeah, is justified yeah. right they just stop right before the therefore yeah, yeah yeah right because we've all heard that before we we like knew that that was a thing that people said yeah and they just like drop that in there as like you know, it like it like legitimizes they that like, idea. Yeah, they march right up to the point, it. and then they're just like you, and you do the rest. Yeah, like. and you kind of have to ask yourself why do they maintain this narrative, right? Like the Bible, like it's one thing if the if a literal reading of the Bible forces you to do it. Like I think you shouldn't le- read the Bible literally, but like I at least understand if you're just like I read the Bible super literally and it says this, therefore. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you read the Bible literally, you don't get any sense of dark-skinned Gibeonites. Yeah. So it's really weird that they feel that attachment to that idea. Yeah. Against, like, all the facts, basically. Yeah. Anyways, the real uh, aspect of this is that a lot of the people associate the Gibeonites with the modern-day Balashas. Okay. And that's a group of—it's a population in Ethiopia that's uh, distinct in that they are— uh, religiously Jewish, mm-hmm. so they sort of maintain themselves separate among uh, Ethiopian society uh, and maintain their kind of like you know religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of them ended up moving to Israel after Israel was created. Modern day Israel was was created, and so there's not really any like archaeological evidence that that the Gibeonites became the Falashas. And most likely they didn't, but that's like the association that people have. All right. So the sun stands still. Mm-hmm. So the other kings hear about how Gibeon has now allied, uh, quote unquote, allied with the Israelites. So they all decide to attack Gibeon. This part makes no sense because they're like, oh, they're going to be really powerful now. Mm-hmm. So we should try to put a stop to that. So they attack them. It's like, if they're powerful, why are you attacking them? 
Yeah. You're not going to, they're not, are they going to get well, more it's powerful? Like, it's because like, they all are like, Hey, look at what they did. Like, cause they all band together sort of thing. Yeah. I, guess I don't know. True. So okay. strength in numbers. You. Yeah. So they all attack. And, um, so the Gibeonites ask Joshua for help. Joshua is like, yes. And in this massive battle with like everybody while they're defending the Gibeonites, God assists them in battle with hailstones. And it says that like, you know, more people die with these hailstones coming down from the sky than, you know, the Israelites actually doing any of the Mm -hmm. slaying. All right. So there's like huge battle, hailstones. And at one point, Joshua commands the sun and the moon to stop for, and they do for a whole day because like, I don't know, it's not very clear, but like, it seems like they need to defeat them in the span of a day during daylight or something. Like I read something online. Somebody was trying to say that like, oh, they thought that if they stopped fighting, then they would regroup and it'd be harder to defeat them the next day. Yeah. I think that's why they was worried about people fleeing in the night and like Mm -hmm. getting away. Yeah. So the, you know, the sun and the moon stand still. There's a line in there that says that like, this is the first and last time that God listened to a man. But we all know that's not true <laughs> because it's a Moses. And yeah, that's it. I saw another thing that was like, this is atheists' favorite thing to point out because obviously the sun doesn't move through the sky. You know, the earth is what's moving around the sun. And like, I like to think that God was just listening to Joshua's intent behind it. And that was Joshua's worldview at the time. The sun moved through the sky. And so he, he did. That's what he was doing. Just like, okay. All right. As an atheist, personally, I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) There's too much like wrong with the physics of that story to bother with even. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to piece it apart. Yeah. My issue with that story is not that the like, oh, well, like the sun isn't what's moving through the sky. Like, (laughs) let's start with the fact that (laughs) That it stops. (laughs) It just stops. Yeah, it also, so they, this comes kind of the end of, they, they've already described the entire battle, and then it's sort of like smack this in right at the end, mm-hmm. um, which to me suggests that it was probably added later. Also, so, so they, they reference something called the Book of Jashar. Mm-hmm. It says, as this all happened as is written in the Book of Jashar, okay. which is a lost Hebrew text. Um, I, some, some people said it's like a, a poetry or something like that, um, but it's a lost Hebrew text that, people at this time would have been familiar with and probably had some of these like stories in it, some, some kind of mythology. And so that's where they're pulling this from. And I think they just, somebody either, it's probably some redactor at some point, just slap this in there to sort of reference it and just give people something that they're familiar with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So during the battle, the one with the hailstones, the five Kings who, you know, banded together to do all this, they flee to a cave where they hide out during everything. So Joshua tells the men to go there and roll some large stones over the mouth of the cave so they can't escape and to set some guards near it. They're left there during the entire battle while the fighting is happening. So after all the fighting is done, five kings are brought to Joshua. He instructs some warriors to put their foot on the neck of each king and then Joshua strikes down each of the kings and then he hangs them up in five separate trees until evening at sunset, cuts their bodies down and throws it into a cave somewhere. Sorry, the same cave that they were hiding in. And then next they go to Libna, they kill everybody and they do the, they do the same thing to the Libna king. They do the you know, stepping on their neck, hanging from the tree, then cut it down kind of thing. Then they move to Lachish, do the same thing in two days. At Lachish, King Horam of Gezer can't like comes to help them and so israel destroys them too and then they go to eglon they take that place in a day then they double back and go to deber and they destroy that place yeah then it basically ends with they kill absolutely everybody in the land and then they (laughs) return to gilgal and live happily ever after yeah a couple of things here is like i feel like if we watch this as a movie we were to see this in any context outside of the bible we would feel really uncomfortable with Joshua and the Israelites as like a hero. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like we expect a lot of our heroes in movies. Like one of the things we expect is kind of like gracious in victory. Yeah. Like not like putting their feet on the necks of like the Kings and like basically like 
humiliating and then savagely murdering mm-hmm. them, you know? you know? Like, there's a lot of movies where, like, the hero almost gets killed because he is letting the villain live. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I, I mean, and, like, in, like, Star Wars, the fall of Anakin kind of really takes off after he kills Count Dooku instead of letting him live. Yeah. Or, I don't know, there's just in a lot of, of examples. I know just, like, in most of our modern-day examples of hero, there comes a point where you're like, oh, am I no better than them if I do this kind of thing? Right. <laughs> and there's there's none of that here. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and people don't expect it of it, right? They yeah. don't judge it by that standard at all. The other thing is a contradiction here that I, I don't think anybody else, I don't, I don't see reference to it anywhere. Nobody mm-hmm. really talks about it. But uh, so the five kings that he hangs are the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish and Eglon. Okay. Okay. And then they go through this campaign afterwards, right? Yeah. And they take the cities of Makeda, Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. Uh huh. And of these, it mentions specifically killing the kings when they go to Makeda, Libna, Hebron, and Debir. Uh huh. The rest of them, it doesn't mention the kings because they've already killed the kings. Okay. Hebron gets. Twice, right? Mm. So they, 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 Hebron is one of the five kings and they kill him. They kill the king of Hebron and they go back to Hebron and they kill the king again that they've already killed. Maybe they kill his son. Well, I'll, I'll address re- that later. Okay. I, have a, <laughs> I have a response to that. Yeah. Um, but for one, presumably some of these other kings had sons too, but they all, they didn't mention killing their sons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. There's no mention of this contradiction that I can find online, and Christians don't like, you know, seem to have a response to it anywhere. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, we, it's kind of weird. So it says they go back to Gilgal, you know, and that's kind of it. But then the, you know, the kings up in the north, they decide, yeah, (laughs) they decide that they need to unite together to attack Israel. So then, you know, God gives them permission to go and kill all of them, too. There's also something in there where God says that their chariots need to be burned and their horses to be hamstrung. I mean, to hamstring the horses. And I just didn't have the heart to look up what that was. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't either. It's like, I'm pretty you know sure. What? I have a pretty good idea of probably what that is. And yeah. I don't really need to see a, a visual of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and then... um. The last thing is there's like a summary of Joshua's conquest. So it just kind of goes through the list. And and it's interesting because it lists um, Moses's conquest. And it's like this like kind of short little thing. And then it goes into Joshua's and it's like Joshua just like, you know, yeah, it's huge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently this, uh, according to the traditional understanding of, of who wrote all these books, this one was written by Joshua. So he's just really like, Flopping it out there. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, suck it, Moses. <laughs> One thing throughout all of this that really bothers me is the inability of these writers to craft a compelling narrative. <laughs> That's what drives me insane. I think it's just like the time period. They hadn't learned it yet. Yeah. They didn't really know how to do it yet. Yeah. But I get kind of excited when I start reading one of these stories, right? Mm-hmm. Like this last one, it's like, oh, all the king's... In the north, right? They're all coming together. It's this massive force, right? The, the Israelites are outnumbered. They're backed in a corner. Yeah. Right? And what I'm waiting for is, right, we're going to have this battle, and there's going to be, like, details, right? Imagery, uh-huh. maybe. And Joshua's going to be, he's going to be leading them, and he's like, shoot, we're, we're, we're not going to make it. But then he, he comes up with this, this plan, something really creative, mm-hmm. right? Some strategy, some trick yeah. that's going to... It's 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 going to turn the tide in yeah. their favor. Maybe right? he'll raise his hands up for the whole time, and you know, and it's. <laughs> I I don't something actually no, cool, right? Yeah, and he's and they're gonna they're gonna overtake them, right? And they're just gonna they're gonna barely win, but not without sacrifice, right? You gotta have stakes. Mm-hmm. That none of that's none of that exists here. Yeah, it's always just like like they keep raising like the oh, and then there's even more there's even more kings, right? There's even more people for them to fight. It's a it's even even bigger odds that they're up against, and then they win, of course, because they have God, and it, yeah. like it's just like that. It's just they just completely utterly destroy them. They lose nobody. They kill them all, 
and it wasn't even hard for them. I know. I was. I, was, I feel like at this point in our journey of like you know reading the Bible together, we've kind of like gotten past the whole point of you know like obviously we think this whole thing is stupid, um, but we're kind of looking to be entertained a little bit. And yeah. I think we get nuggets of that. Like we get some things where we're like, oh, like that's kind of like an interesting piece of mythology there. Then a lot of this is just like, God, all these people read the Bible and it's, it's just not that good of a book. It's just not that interesting. Yeah. I guess which explains why most Christians aren't terribly familiar with it. Yeah. Last thing, right? So in your discussion of the the summaries, right? The very, very end of that whole summaries of the, the different conquest and the king and the the places that they conquer it talks about the kings that were conquered by joshua and it just lists all the names of the kings and where they're from and then it has like in the right column it's like one 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 Mm -hmm. like it like the number one as the number of kings from that place when we get to hebron one king oh right so the it's not that they didn't kill him and then his son took his place and they killed his son yeah because that would mean two kings of hebron right It just says one. It just says one. Yeah. Completely refuted. <laughs> yeah. So that's Joshua 1 through 12. And then we'll probably, we'll finish Joshua in the next episode. Yep. Bye, y'all. Bye.